This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Tony Van Veen. Uh, today is December 18th, 2013. We're conducting this interview at my home in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia. And this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Tony. Hello, Joseph. Hi. Uh, so I guess we'll begin uh, with where you were born and, and when you were born. Yeah, I was born in uh, Amsterdam, Holland in 1964, November 1964. Um, my father is Dutch and uh, my mother was from Aruba in the Caribbean and uh, they met, they were both teachers, they met in Holland when my mother was there with her father who had a, he worked for government in the islands uh, and was sent to Holland to basically represent the Dutch islands the six Dutch islands in the Caribbean, you know, at, at, at the government for the, uh, at the Dutch government. And so I was born in Holland and uh, lived there uh, till I was five. And then uh, my grandfather, who was back in Aruba, had a stroke. And my parents decided they wanted to move there to be closer to him. But for some odd reason, they moved to Curacao, not Aruba, which is Curacao is the island next door to Aruba. And I lived there for three years, and then when I was eight, we um, we moved to uh, Aruba, and I spent kind of most of my formative the formative years uh, in Aruba. Uh, when I was uh, fifteen in nineteen eighty, uh, my father had gotten a job offer at a at a realtor in Holland, and you know when you're when you graduate high school in Aruba and you're going to continue your education, you have to leave the country. There's no university there, mm -hmm. at least not back then. And so um, most kids choose to come either to the U.S. or go to Holland to study. And um, my parents figured, well, Tony's uh, going into 11th grade. Um, he'll be flying a coop soon. If we move to Holland, we'll be closer to where he'll study, and that'll be fine. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, so I, I got to uh, I got to Holland, and I absolutely hated it. I was I was terribly homesick, um, and uh, just you know all I would do would be uh, you know sit in my room and you know after school and listen to Bob Marley records and you know miss the tropical island and all my friends. Because uh, you know it's pretty different in Holland than uh, than in Aruba, and so uh, uh, so I was there in eleventh grade. I actually failed eleventh grade uh, and repeated eleventh grade um, because you were so miserable. Well, the you know the Dutch school system. Um, every student at the end of twelfth grade takes the same centralized final exam, mm -hmm. and the final exam covers the last two to three years worth of material you know, uh, to, to an extent. And so uh, in, in Aruba, they work towards that final exam in kind of a linear fashion uh, from between 6th and 12th grade. In Holland, what they did was they would cover the material between 6th and 11th, and then 12th grade would be kind of a, a review. Mm -hmm. And so when I got there in 11th grade, I was almost a year behind academically, and I did tutoring and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, uh, being homesick didn't help matters, uh, and so I ended up failing 11th grade, or re repeating 11th grade. Um, 
And, uh, and then, uh, you know, six months after we got there, my, uh, the company my, my dad moved there to work at went bankrupt. It was the early 80s, it was a recession. And he kind of bummed around looking for jobs and little odd jobs here and there for a couple of years. And then at the end of two years, they said, you know what, we're going back. And so, uh, you know, we packed up and went back to Aruba. And I I'd finished 12th grade in Aruba. And then after that, you know, it was time to, to go to college. And um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I, I contemplated not going to college and just getting a job. And... Uh, my mother put her foot down and said, hell no, that's not going to happen, you know. Uh, um, you're going to get an education. And I was like, ooh, okay. Um, and, and so, you know, with, with no specific um, academic interests, I decided, you know, I guess I'll, I'll study business. I'll, I'll, I'll go to business school because I know I'll need a job. This is with my high school you know, seniors' logic, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to need a job after I graduate, and if I study business, I'll be able to get a job in any business. And so I applied to a bunch of schools up and down the East Coast. I figured I'll study in the U.S. because I know what life is like in Holland already. I get to kind of broaden my horizons here. And um, my stretch uh, application uh, was Penn here in Philly. And... Uh, Somehow I got in. So you were bilingual then, from yeah, from yeah. childhood. Okay. Um, I yeah, my my English was good. It's funny because now when I watch some of the old uh, interviews or listen to some of the old interviews from back in the day, my accent was was more pronounced. But yeah, I was I was bilingual. In fact, um, you know everybody in Aruba basically who grows up there speaks four languages: English, uh, just culturally, a lot of American tourists, American TV, etc. Dutch is the official language. Um, Papiamento is the local language, and then Spanish because it's 15 miles off the coast of Venezuela. Yeah. So do you then you can speak? Can you speak all four yeah. languages? That's very yeah. impressive. Uh, yeah, Aruba. I I really know nothing of. I mean, I know it is as a vacation spot that I've never been to. Um, and I know it's kind of an imprecise question, but what is Aruba like? as a place that one lives in versus one visits? Well, you know, it doesn't suck. Okay, um, <laughs> that's good. It's, it's, it's a small tropical island. It's unlike your typical, stereotypical picture of a Caribbean island, if you haven't been there. It's not like lush and green. It's kind of arid. It, it, it almost, it rains almost never. Um, but it has its own desert-like beauty, you know, to a think like, you know, Arizona kind of landscape without the mountains. Um, beautiful beaches. Um, you know, it, it is a great vacation destination. But, you know, when you live there, in school, you still got homework. You still got stuff to do, you know. And, and um, but the big advantage is, you know, you can hit the beach 52 weekends a year. So, you know, that that's a nice... Uh, a nice, nice fringe benefit uh, to have. But you know, you're like any other, like any other teenager anywhere. You know, you're dealing with your teenage angsts and your girlfriends and your friends and your hobbies and you know, listening to music and it, it, the same stuff that goes on everywhere. Uh, 
Except it's 85 degrees year-round. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> is there a punk rock in Aruba? Heck no. <laughs> so uh, Bob Marley, I know, is there. But. Yeah, you know, my, my early musical influences... You know, I discovered Bob Marley at 14, and, and to me, you know, even though, you know, I'm a white boy from a middle-class family, you know, it really spoke to me. I mean, just, uh, not just the message, but, you know, the, 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 the songwriting and, and, and um, just the whole kind of borderline revolutionary fervor to it uh, really spoke to me uh, you know I, I, I listened to their you know a, a mix of you know what you would hear on commercial US radio and you know local music and Caribbean music you know mm -hmm. reggae calypso merengue salsa and then you know I mean some of the US groups I gravitated towards back in the early days was, you know, Santana and Earth, Wind & Fire and, and um, you know, those kinds of groups. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved to Holland in 1980, 81, and I, you know, I, I was really into reggae, but I, I, I got introduced to, um, you know, the, the early, some of the early new wave uh, acts, you know, Gang of Four, uh, talking Heads, early U2, um, and then the, the, the British Sky Invasion, you know, uh, the Specials, the Selector, uh, Madness, etc. So I, 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 I was really into that. And then, you know, the odd, the odd rock act, you know, I was into Hendrix, listening to Hendrix a little bit, um, Oddly, somehow, I got really into Kiss. Uh, my first big concert, you know, no big concerts in Aruba. Right. So when I was in Holland, my first big concert, I was 16, and I, I lived in a city in the north called Groningen. And um, the first big concert I went to was, um, you know, I rode the train for like two and a half hours to this big hall by myself. It was uh, Iron Maiden opening up for Kiss. Nice. Pretty awesome. There must be an eye-opening experience to, you know, go from living on the island to seeing a concert of that sort of magnitude. It, I'd never seen anything like it before, you know, and all the pyrotechnics and all the stuff and, uh, you know, the, looking at, you know, Peter Chris on his drum riser and the drum riser turns upside down 180 degrees and he's still playing. I mean, it, it's, it like blew my mind, yeah, you yeah. know, how, how awesome, you know, that, that just the, the showmanship... Uh, and all of that. And do you move yeah. through a haze of pot smoke to get into a venue like that? With the... You know, not that I can recall. Not that I can recall. Um, you know, there's, you know, both, both in Aruba and uh, in Holland, you know, there's plenty of drinking, plenty of beer drinking. There was no minimum drinking age in Aruba. I got all my drinking out of my system very early you know I came here to go to college I never played one drinking game throughout the four years of college because I, I had no interest I had no need I've been you know to me you know drinking is something you can you do you do it socially you don't need to play play games to get fucked up yeah yeah right you know um, so uh, so yeah so um, I you know so I, I got the pen um, 
And through happenstance, a couple of the guys on my floor, uh, Rich Hoke, who I ended up playing in a few bands with, and Mark Furnish, um, were into hardcore. And this is, so I got here in, uh, in 1983, mm -hmm. um, August of 1983. And they were into hardcore, and one evening they said, hey, Tony, you want to come with us? There's a, you know, hardcore gig that we're going to go to um, downtown. And I, I had no other plans. I'm like, yeah, sure, what the hell? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we end up going to the Long March at, at Broad and South on the second floor. Um, and uh, it was Y-Dye and some other act opening up for the Meat Puppets. Man. And um, so we walk in and, you know, why die starts and it's just you know why die has this incredible wall of noise that is just to me i've always found them generally unintelligible in terms of you know when neil would sing or growl you know with combined with the guitars and the bass there's a ton of mids and lows not a lot of highs and so it's a it's a wall of noise but you can't really figure out what's you know what's being sung. Or You're just getting pummeled. Yeah, by pummeled. a bear. And I, this wall of sound like hits me like a sledgehammer, and I am like, what the hell is this? Because <laughs> I am fresh off the boat, right? Yeah. Never heard anything like this before in my life, and um, and I'm like, holy smokes, um, you know. Wow, I was just like completely taken aback by it, and 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 not in a way that you know I've heard in some of the other interviews where guys are like, "Boy, I've been waiting for this revolution all my, in sound all my life." Right. For me, it was, was like, "Wow, this is really foreign to me," you know, mm -hmm. um, and and so uh, you know, I always, I, I guess, I, I in a way, I brought a little outsider perspective to to the scene. Also, you know, I missed. Growing up in Aruba, you know, I missed the whole classic rock uh, era because there was not a lot of rock being played there. I missed the whole Prague thing. I, you know, I, I, there was relatively little rock that was being played. So, um, you know, I, I really, and I still have like huge gaps in my, you know, in my background from that because I never really grew up with it. So I never developed like a super affinity, like a, you know, you know. Yeah. A lot of my friends have for that. Um, so I went straight from Little Rock to Hardcore. Right. Right? And, and I remember, you know, the mosh pit started and I'd never seen it. I thought a big fight had broken out. Uh -huh. You know, I was just so freaking clueless. And, um, Can you possibly imagine yourself within that, in a roiling chaos? Uh, Hell no. I remember standing way against the back wall, up a little, so I could kind of oversee the whole thing and yeah. see the band. But I wanted nothing. I was just borderline shell-shocked, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so we stayed, and then um, at that gig, I think the bass player for the Meat Puppets played the whole gig naked with just a sock over his private. <laughs> so it was quite the you know, the sonic and visual kind of 
just overwhelmed. Yeah, that's like the that, perfect introduction that, that, to that I experienced. <laughs> yeah. And you know, ringing ears and all that stuff. Obviously, at the end, and uh, you know, going back. But you know what? We were drinking beer, and you know, like met met a bunch of folks, and um, you know, it, it was it was a good time. And so a couple of weeks later, there was another gig. I don't even remember what the other gig was. And um, they invited me, and I'm like, yeah, what the heck? I'll go. We'll drink beer and stuff. You know, not so much into the music, but. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but funny thing is, you know, as you kind of get more into it, you get exposed to it, it becomes familiar, and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, this shit's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, so that was, that was really kind of my, uh, my introduction to, uh, you know, to the whole... The whole hardcore scene. What were the bands that you were gravitating towards uh, early on once you started to become a part of the hardcore scene? Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the easy in for me was the Bad Brains because they, you know, they, they had this little reggae element right. and but they rocked so hard. And to me, I think the Bad Brains still to this day are my all-time favorite hardcore band. Um, you know, I was, I was really into Husker Du. I was into some of the more, a little more melodic, you know, Marginal Man, uh, Agent Orange. Um, but, you know, the Necros, which were pretty hard, and, and you know, the FUs, and, uh, you know, Angry Samoans. Um, you know, as far as local bands, um, You know, I mean, guys at FOD were, were in FOD were friends, and uh, you know, I, I I always dug them. Electric Love Muffin, McRad, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I always thought Why Die was great. Um, you know, after uh, after uh, Homo Picnic, um, Doug, our guitarist. Uh, went on to play in Scab Cadillac, which I thought was an awesome band. And, you know, I mean, so so many other bands. You know, I thought the Serial Killers were cool. I, I thought, you know, D-Control was cool. I, we were friends with, you know, a lot of the, obviously, all, all of our contemporaries. You're, you're hanging out together. If yeah. you're not gigging, you're attending the gigs, you know. Um, so, it was, it was cool. It was, you know, just a, a pretty... A pretty great environment, I thought. You know, almost like a like a huge extended family. Mm -hmm. It seems like it wasn't long uh, from when you initially discovered this thing and started attending the events to when you then begin performing. Uh, so, how did that come about? Yeah, I I grew up uh, playing alto sax as a kid, going to music lessons and. And, um, you know, in Aruba and Carnival, um, it's similar to Brazil. They have these brass bands that are very percussive. And it's just, you know, drum section and horns. Um, and, and so I, and I would always play in these brass bands. But I always secretly wanted to play drums. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I, I, I never got around to it. I never got to take any lessons or anything like that. Uh, and so um, there was a talent show in the fall of... Uh, 
83 in our dorm. I lived in this dorm called Hill House on 33rd and Walnut. Um, and uh, Rich and Mark and I decided we were going to start a band. Uh, and we started a little, just for that, mm -hmm. one-time gig, we, we, we started a band called Pud. Peni under direction, <laughs> and and we wrote a song called "Overdrawn Accounts" about how our our uh, bank account at the uh, the local Gerard Bank, which is now many generations gone, uh, was overdrawn, and we were going to end up dropping out of school. And it was like the whole thing was very silly, but um, you know, it it, it was. It wasn't particularly uh, musically very developed, and so it had, I guess, a, a bit of a punk DIY aesthetic to it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and we and that, that was like the first time I ever sat behind a drum kit was to, you know, work with these two guys. We 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 wrote this silly song and we played, and I think we won. I'm I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure. Did you have any idea what you were doing? I mean, you say it's the first time you sit behind the drum kit. I, I did, because uh, I've, I've been watching drummers, and particularly as I was going to gigs, and then I would, you know, in my room or whatever, I would kind of try to figure out, on, you know, banging on my thighs or on a table or something like that. So I, I had enough of a clue. I was by no means a drummer, um, certainly not a, 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 you know, any kind of adept drummer. Uh, but but from that, um, you know, we ended up uh, not too long after that uh, getting together. Mark had a girlfriend, uh, Stacy Gold, who's now known as Stacy Finney, um, and uh, we met this other kid, uh, Doug Bennett, who uh, lived in Mount Airy, and we got a little band together uh, that ended up being. Kremlin Corps, and uh, so I, I guess that was that was either the fall of or the winter of '83 uh, or, or spring of uh, early spring '84, and uh, I remember the exhilaration I felt at all of us being able to get together. None of us having had years of classes or, or needed to reach any kind of virtuosic, you know, instrumentalist capacity, that we were just a bunch of kids and we were able to actually be in a band and play. I, I'd never taken a lesson. I didn't really know how to play drums. And here I was, I was in a freaking band and it was so freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know? I don't think that there are a lot of types of music that that happens in. No, it doesn't. Because a certain level it of like, expertise and expectation. That you go is forward. the beauty. To me, that is the essence, the beauty of, of, of punk and of hardcore. You know, I, I kind of missed the punk. You know, I, you know, I always consider myself more of a hardcore kid than a punk kid, though. It, the terms are obviously generally kind of mixed up or yeah, combined into hardcore, hardcore punk. punk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I, I was you know I, I came in like at the tail end or at, at the tail end of you know the Philly bands being kind of more British punk styled and you know kind of the start of really kind of the hardcore mm -hmm. um, kids where it's just you know a bunch of regular kids in t-shirts and plaid and you know, um, 
you know, they no not so much with the uh, the leather jackets and the uh, you know in the Your mohawks, the mohawks the yeah. etc. Did you feel that you could relate more to the the hardcore strain than than what preceded it? Uh, yes. Um, I liked, you know, I liked the straightforward driving, you know, aggression, um, you know, and I liked, I, you know, for something that was anti-fashion, punk itself had become a fashion, which I thought was kind of hypocritical. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that, that never really worked for me. I liked that it was a bunch of kids, working class kids, suburban kids, city kids, country kids, you know, just getting together and, you know, for lack of a better word, having, you know, good, clean fun, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, back to, back to, uh, uh, you know, Kremlin Corps, when, uh, you know, we would, like most bands, you, you, you jam and you start by playing, you know, in, in your practice space you know, cover songs of, you know, other bands. And then finally one day, I, I think it was Mark or somebody said, hey, let's write a song. Mm -hmm. What were you covering at first? What were you? I, you know, I, I, I don't even remember. Probably Kiss songs, because Mark is like, you know, a huge Kiss fan. I was a Kiss fan. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Love became one of the covers that we that we would play as part of our repertoire when we would when yeah we, would we saw gig. that when we did yeah. the, the live and um, so we were we were gonna write a song and I'm like I'm thinking to myself I remember thinking to myself how is this gonna work and little did I realize writing a song didn't involve any writing when certainly not when you played in a hardcore pop band right you just you know you play some riff you play it often enough you repeat it often enough right. you know if it sounds good all right we got a verse. Let's do something else, you know, for the chorus. And uh, but it was it was so empowering, you know, the whole this whole thing. Like, wow, we can actually do this. Mm -hmm. It was like it, it just it just kind of opened my eyes to a whole new world. You know, I was at Penn. I hated it. Um, what did I, you hate about it? Uh, I felt. Well, for starters, it was really hard for me because all of my schooling had been in Dutch. Uh, I switched, you know, here to English. And my English was fluent, but it's still very different, you know, having all your core subjects in a different language. Um, you know, I ended up taking legal studies at 8 a.m. as my freshman first semester, which is always a mistake. Plus, the whole legal system here is different from the, the, how it is over there. And... Um, it was just, it was academically very challenging, but the main thing was the kids, uh, particularly, you know, in, in the business school, I thought they were all a bunch of type A assholes worried about how young they were going to be by the time they made their first million. Right. Uh -huh. And I couldn't care less. And so, you know, the music all of a sudden, because I, you know, I came to college to study because I felt I had to, not because I wanted to or had a real interest. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it was like this beautiful rose opening up. I'm like, this is it. This is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and this, you know, throughout my years in college, I mean, I had, I had very few friends um, at Penn. Um, you know, I mean... 
today I have, I have one friend left from Penn. Um, and, and all my friends were, were outside in the, in the hardcore scene, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what kept me sane is, is, you know, was, you know, going to band practice a couple of times a week and playing gigs and going to gigs and hanging with my, my friends on weekends. Um, you know, that, that, that really kept me going. Did you think at the time that that could be a, a sustain, sustaining lifestyle or that it was really something that was, you know, sort of transitory and you'd eventually have to get more back into the studies or, or where? And you know, um, I mean, I, I was studying. I was doing enough, you know, to get passing grades. Um, my grades did get better, you know, every semester as I kind of got more into the groove. Um, I didn't think about it that much while I was in, you know, working my way through college. But as, you know, as we got closer, as I got closer to, to the end, to graduating, I was like, you know what? You know, this music, I'd like to do something at this music thing. You know, this, this is something I can, I, I'd like to do. Um... And uh, yeah, it's it's jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, you know, that's uh, you know, and I, I and I thought, well, you know, like like many kids who play in bands in college. When I graduated, I thought, well, if this band goes somewhere now, this was Homo Picnic at that time. If this band goes anywhere now, I'm gonna ride it all the way. Mm -hmm. And needless to say, it didn't. Um, but it it you know it it did start, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll touch on that a little later. Um, you know, kind of my my current career and how how that kind of you know started up. So coming coming forward with the Kremlin Core, when when you're stepping up to present your hardcore band, did you feel that there was something that you wanted to say, like what your group was going to be about or present to the scene? Well, you know, obviously the the name Kremlin Core, you know, has a a political connection and it was it was partly tongue-in-cheek partly ironic you know um, but partly you know uh, uh, for me uh, you know I was I was into you know social justice and and felt that you know we would like to or I would like to make a statement about that and and I, I really didn't didn't get involved with that with Kremlin Core. I mean, I, I didn't. I was just a drummer. I wasn't writing lyrics. Um, you know, I think that was mostly Stacy. And so, uh, you know, so over there, um, you know, in, in in Kremlin Core, that 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 didn't really play a role. Uh, later on with Homo Picnic, um, you know, I would write lyrics. Doug would write lyrics. Rich Hoke, when he was in the band, because he wasn't in the band for the whole. Uh, period that we had the band uh, wrote lyrics, and so it was it was kind of a mishmash of you know uh, different lyrical styles, um, and I was able to you know make make some of my you know get get some of my my wording and my my thoughts out. Okay, so I guess before we move into to Homo Picnic, the, what what precipitated the end of Kremlin Core? I mean, you well, recorded an EP at some point. Uh, right? We did. You know, it was interesting. The the first gig we played was at, I mean, back to, you know, my mind getting blown by how awesome this hardcore scene was. Um, the first gig we played was 
um, at the Community Education Center, CEC Center at like uh, uh, 34th and Lancaster. And um, with Scream and No Trend and I think four other bands in us. Um, and we only knew four songs. Mm -hmm. And we're like the first band on. And we play our four songs and we actually get an encore. And we look at each other. We're on the side of the stage. People are cheering. And we're like, what do we do now? We don't know any more songs. Mm -hmm. So we ended up, we went back up and we ended up playing one of the songs again. Uh, and, 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 and again, it was just, I'm like, wow. Here we are, first gig, our own songs. Mm -hmm. People are digging it so much. You know, they want us to play another. And it, it, was, uh, it was just a, an amazing uh, an amazing feeling, like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm on top of the world here, you know. And here we were, you know, opening act on a bill with seven bands. Right, one of right? the screen, which is really <laughs> impressive. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess uh, if you're going from school where you don't really have that many friends, and all of a sudden all of these people really like what you're doing, it was, even at the it level was, you're doing it. Was it was awesome. Time. It was awesome. And, and so, anyway, so, um, so we, we, you know, we, we played plenty, um, with with Kremlin Core, um, and what precipitated the end, like like many bands, uh, was um, just interpersonal tensions. Um, you know, Mark and Stacy were uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, and I, there were there were some tensions that happened there, and. At, one point in time. I, I don't recall the exact details. We just decided okay. this is it. We called it quits. And then, um, and then we ended up, uh, Doug, who was the guitarist, and Rich, who was the bass player, and I um, ended up getting together with another guy, uh, another bass player called Mark Furlong. Uh, and we ended up starting the band that ultimately became Homo Picnic, and Rich switched from bass to uh, to vocals. Okay. Uh, now, what does Homo Picnic uh, mean in terms of a uh, band name? It's rather a peculiar name for a band. It means absolutely <laughs> nothing. Um, it was, you know, we were sitting around one day, um, at in an apartment, and I think it was Todd Cody who was one of our friends. Um, who also wrote a, uh, a zine, I think, called Unknown Crime. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd all been drinking and we're thinking up band names and, uh, you know, all these serious band names, Voice of Doom and all these kind of things. And at one point in time, Rich threw out, what about Homo Picnic? And we're all like, ha, 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 no. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Except as we were continuing to go through a litany of, of potential band names, we didn't like any of them. They were all too serious, too pretentious. And so Homo Picnic kept coming back up. And then finally, I guess we decided, you know what? It's got a certain ring to it. Once you hear it, you don't forget. No, that's very true. You don't forget it. And it's been, you know, we played it up. We had this little, um, uh, this little, like, crooked smiley face that, that, that we made kind of into our little mascot, uh, who we nicknamed the Happy Homo. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's interesting explaining to your parents that you play in a band called Homo Picnic. <laughs> right. Um, certainly, uh, at this stage, explaining or talking to colleagues about that is always, <laughs> always fun and interesting. Um, Did anyone at the time perceive it as being something homophobic that you were putting out there? Um, I mean, none of the members of the group were gay, correct? That's correct. Not yeah. to my knowledge. Right. Um, no, I don't think so. Although, we played a gig at Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And evidently, the uh, local uh, gay and lesbian uh, campus organization uh, was up in arms enough that on the flyers uh, advertising the gig, we were listed as H Picnic. Um, <laughs> Homo bad. <laughs> so, uh, but, but no, uh, it, it was just a random kind of funny sounding name that, believe it or not, meant absolutely nothing. Okay. And, you know, and it, it's, it sounds funny, but we weren't funny punks. You know, when you listen to our lyrics, they, they weren't particularly humorous. They were generally fairly serious. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just was, you know, the, the, the name was a bit of a non sequitur, I guess. Right. So what were you saying then in Homo Picnic? Like, what, what was the idea behind the band or what kind of ideas did you want to put out there with that band? And then, I suppose, musically as well, were you still coming through as a hardcore band? Well, um, you know, you know, I rail against social inequities or, uh, you know, rail against, um, you know, business suit culture, you know, people just in going through the motions, you know, choosing between the gray suit one day and the blue suit another day and, um, you know, not, not stopping to smell the flowers. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, again, we had, we had several guys writing lyrics, so it was a bit all over. It was, you know, some stuff about personal relationships, etc. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, just a great creative outlet. Yeah, you know, I wasn't a very good drummer when, when I started with Kremlin Core, and I did as, over the years, I mean, I never took lessons, but, you know, just doing it, you know, you, you, you achieve a certain degree of proficiency, and so the band, I think, musically, uh, Homo Picnic was, you know, uh, on a different level than, than it was at Kremlin Core. Not necessarily that the music was better, but the musicianship was, uh, was better. Um, and, you know, were we, we were, yes, we were a hardcore band, but, um, you know, we always, we were, we had a pretty heavy kind of, metalish uh bent to us uh all of us were were into metal i remember as a uh as a freshman at penn sitting in mark furnish's room uh having my mind blown uh hearing metallica's master of puppets album for the mm -hmm. first time and just just like incredulous that that you know, to me, this was like a symphonic masterpiece. Yeah, it's epic. And um, you know, this, these, these eight, ten-minute compositions going from fast to slow and loud to quiet. It was just like, and heavy. Uh, so we, uh, you know, we might have appropriated or reconstructed the occasional Metallica riff into kind of a, you know, yeah, right. a, a homo picnic song here or there. 
um, change some of the notes so it's not too obvious. But, you know... Um, but all bands tend to do that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, stealing, homage, whatever. Uh, did you wind up recording with Homo Picnic? Yes. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, we recorded a uh, cassette demo um, called Blood on the Walls that had four songs on it. And then we, um, we ended up doing an album we, uh, at uh, Prospect Park Studios in Prospect Park out by the airport. Um, this engineer with the best last name ever. What was that? Vinny War Savage. That was his real last name? Yes. Wow. He was a, uh, some Eastern European immigrant descendant. Uh, his, the original name was Varsovicio. And uh, some ancestor of his uh, anglicized it to War Savage. God, I wish he would adopt me. Uh, it's awesome, right? Yeah. It's a great name. And uh, so we, we recorded an album uh, that uh, came out on uh, Plus Records. Uh, Mark Pingator uh, put out the album. Uh, I think it sold well. I, I, I don't know how, um, how much it sold, but... Uh, I, I heard it sold, I think we sold out like 1,500 copies uh, yeah. over a relatively short period. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, a couple of years ago remastering it and, and putting it out uh, uh, on CD Baby. And so it's available on iTunes and Spotify oh, and no. all those places right now. So you wound up touring, right? At least to some. Yeah, we, we would go down to about DC, up to Boston, and and west to, you know, Kalamazoo. We played, you know, we had a, a road trip. We went, we played the State College, and we played Kalamazoo, and, you know, I don't know, eight guys in a van, and, you know, trucking it back to get back to class on Monday. Right. Uh, you know, because, because. We, we didn't really have, you know, no money to, to really stay over vacations and do like lengthy, lengthy trips. Um, and, uh, but it was, it was, it was good times, man. Uh, you know, going up to Boston, going down to Baltimore, but mostly gigs, local gigs, you know, loved playing here, Abner's, um, you know, and, you know, Lenny and Christian Crunch, you know, booking gigs and, you know, Chuck me in and these guys were all, you know, good friends to to both of the bands that uh, that we were in and uh, you know really took care of us you know you know what was so awesome about this whole hardcore punk scene in the 80s uh, you know I refer to it almost uh, you know like a family but it, it was almost like a, a parallel universe run by kids because mm -hmm. we were all kids you know the elder statesman of the scene were in their mid-twenties. Yeah, yeah. That was it. They, yeah, those that is, were, a, very, that those, is a very interesting thing. Those were the elder statesmen. They were in their early 23, 24, 25. You know, um, I was 19, 18, 19, 20. Um, and we were writing songs. We were recording. We were buying gear. We were renting vans. We were buying beat-up old vans to... To hit the road, we were, you know, booking gigs, uh, paying bands, um, and when I say we, I wasn't booking gigs or paying bands, but but as a, as, as a, a society, group, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. right, right, as it were, you know, 
It, and it was all kids. Yeah. And we made it all work. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, were there fights? Yeah, of course there were fights. But but mostly, you know, you're 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 in the pit, and uh, you know, and moshing and. Yeah, you could get an uh, you know an accidental el- elbow you know in in your face, but at the same time you know you fall down. There's two guys ready to pull you up and get you back up. Um, it was I thought you know extremely fraternal. You know, yeah. very strong. Uh, you know, positive uh, uh, vibe and and bonds between mm-hmm. the folks that would go to the gigs. And there's a very self policing element because I suppose these shows are kind of very precariously balanced with the venue. So if something goes off kilter, it, it kind of threatens all of the future at this place. So the kids really have to watch. Well, that's true. The, the with the the relationship with the venues were usually precarious. Uh, except for like a love hall, you know, that was booked by Howard Fats, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, but but many of the other venues were were kind of tenuous. Um, so yeah, you had to you know you you, you had to kind of behave. You know, anything went pretty much at Abe's, um, and uh, but you know we also you know there were gigs at Bacchanal, um, you know on on Thirteenth and South. Uh, Revival, uh, you know, had hardcore gigs. Uh, a little later, uh, you know, there were some gigs at Troc. Um and uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, you had to. Uh, you, you couldn't, you couldn't get too crazy all the time. But uh, did you have any issues with uh, contingencies of people coming in, say, from out of the scene that were problematic, like crews of skinheads or things like that? Or people who really just didn't know how this thing actually worked and wound up, you know, bringing in a destructively chaotic element. You you would get that from time to time. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this uh, this this small skinhead contingent that came up from D.C. a couple times um, uh, when uh, you know there was this girl, uh, and I think Stacy talked about it in her interview. This uh, this this black skinhead chick. Which still kind of baffles me how that is possible. Uh, called Lefty, and and she got into fight that, that with some folks, and I think I don't know if she got into a scuffle with Stacy or not, and um, you know called as a commie pinko faggot band. Um, <laughs> that was with Kremlin Corps, but maybe that that comment uh, subconsciously drove the name Homo Picnic later. <laughs> but uh, uh, and you know I. Uh, some of the some of the New York bands like we gig with Agnostic Front, um, you know they would bring you know a, a bit of an element of you know what I would call jockishness to it. Um, you know when you get the jock attitude in the mosh pit, where it's you know showing off how hard you can mosh, yeah. it 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 just becomes. Not fun, you know? It's like football practice for retards. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But when you were moving, when you are doing the shows in, in other areas, uh, did you have any observations of contrast between what was going on in those scenes versus what was going on in Philly at the time? Um, you know, it, it was, it was kind of hard. You know, if you go to Boston or Connecticut, um, you know, Connecticut, uh, we played in Stamford. It's very small scene, very tight, very close-knit. 
But yeah, I mean, but you're also in and you're gigging and you're usually out. So it's hard unless you spend a little more time there to really get a sense uh, of what it was. We, for some reason, I don't know why, and I do, I, I do regret it. We never ended up playing New York with any of the, either of the bands that I was in. You know, I would have loved to play CBs, um, but uh, because of that, I, I don't really have a, have a good sense for, for what, what the New York scene was like. Um, but, uh, you know, we certainly, we saw, uh, you know, some of those bands, you know, come to... Yeah, you mentioned Agnes Front, so that's yeah. kind of the, the quintessential, or one of the quintessential New York hardcore bands. Uh, so what then is the demise of Homo Picnic? Um, real life, right. <laughs> you know, we, um, well, how old are you I, at the, at the point where the, the began, the band ends? You know? So, um, you know, as I mentioned, when I started getting closer to graduation, I started to think, you know, I'd like to do this music thing. Mm -hmm. Let me, uh. Let me see where where this thing goes. If this band goes somewhere, I'm 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 sticking with it. Uh, and so I I told so this is '87. I graduated in '87. I called my parents and said, "Mom, Dad, you know I'm I'm gonna stay here in the United States. I'm gonna try to get a job in the music business." And they're like, "All right, good luck, son." And I'm like, "Shit, I gotta pay rent." I can't break into the music business. I can't just live off my band. There's no, there's no, there's, the sure band is not putting the box. pork shop on the table, right? Yeah. Um, even though, you know, we were, we were drawn, we were drawn pretty well, certainly locally. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but, and, and locally we were, we were making, I think, the, I mean, this, we were, we were getting paid around 300 bucks for a gig towards the end, which was big money back yeah, in 1987. Mid-80s dollars. Yeah, and, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it still, it still didn't really, uh, you know, yes, didn't, pay, multiple didn't, people. didn't pay the rent, right? Yeah, right. Um, and so, and I couldn't afford needing to pay rent, couldn't afford to break into the rest of the music biz the way that, you know, kids typically did back in the day and, and probably still do to an extent today, which is interning for no pay somewhere, you know, at a label or, or, or a, uh, a radio station or a, um, uh, you know, recording studio. And so, you know, I started going through directories of companies and I applied for all kinds of just straight gigs in, in, in real estate and offices, etc. because I just wanted to work here and play in a band. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, through serendipity, I found in a directory the address for disc makers, which at the time was just a small regional record pressing factory mm -hmm. uh, up on uh, Third and Poplar, which was a rough neighborhood back then. And um, I remember the name struck a chord because we had ordered stickers from disc makers. We made uh, we'd made records, but not with disc makers. When uh, when Mark ordered them, he, he had them made somewhere else. I think in California. So they were pressing vinyl. They were pressing they, vinyl. Yeah, they, yes. Yeah. And uh, so I sent in a resume, cold, and um, I get a couple days later, I get a phone call inviting me in for an interview. And um, 
I get on the L, you know, I'm living at 46 in Chester. Uh, I get on the L uh, with my one interview suit, uh, feeling extremely conspicuous, get off at Front and Girard. And, um, you know, and, and Front and Girard uh, back then was like the border between like the barrio and the hood. It ain't looking that good now, even still. But I mean, I oh, it's it it's worse, really you know? nice now. It's it's pretty gentrified, I would say. That whole strip of Girard Avenue. But uh, you know, I so I walked from Front Girard to Third and Poplar, um, feeling extremely uncomfortable and conspicuous in my suit. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I I walk up to this building, and this building is it's ginormous. It's it's a square city block. It's seven stories high. And every single window was boarded up. And the only reason I went in was because it was scarier to turn right around and walk back. <laughs> That's great. So, so anyway, I go in. Did they in. own the, the entirety of yeah, the building? Yeah. Uh -oh. And I, so I, I, I go in and um, I interview. It's in the basement. The office was in the basement. There's no windows. It was hot. It was... Not a pretty place, but I got an interview. I interviewed with the owner, a gentleman by the name of Morris Ballon, who, you know, painted this picture of how how this business was going to be. You know, the business at the time was making, you know, scraping by, selling basically low-priced commodity record pressing services to record labels, and record labels are a notoriously difficult client base. Mm -hmm. Because they pay everybody else before they pay the pressing plant. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some exceptions, but by and large, if you're making a living selling to record labels, it's a tough business. The company had come out of bankruptcy uh, in the early 80s uh, because of just getting stiffed by some labels. And they're dealing with national labels as well at the time? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, and the owner said, you know, there's got to be a better way for me to make a living. Um, and he knew that some artists were starting to order their own record pressings mm -hmm. and decided that's my opportunity. I can sell to those folks. I can offer the other services, the jackets, the labels, the mastering, all the other things that need to get done. I can make it easy and convenient for them, um, and bundle it and, you know, we can we can charge a fair price, make a fair margin. And, you know, since we're dealing with individual musicians, I don't have to give them net 30 or, or net 60. They, they'll just pay when they pick up their records. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so he needed somebody to execute this, this plan to get from selling commodity record pressing to labels and move to selling basically packages, for lack of a better word, uh, to, to artists and musicians. And that had been me, right? right? I had been that guy. And, and you know, the, 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 the DIY punk scene was in the forefront of doing it themselves. I mean, you know, in the, in the early 80s, no artists besides punk artists were really pressing their own records. Yeah, new romantic bands weren't, weren't no, doing this. No, no, maybe some folkies or something. But, <laughs> but it was mostly the hardcore kids that were in the vanguard of truly doing it themselves from soup to nuts. And so I knew this. I had been the client 
right? I was able to relate. I knew what artists needed. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up getting the gig and I, I, I just started entry level doing customer service, uh, doing a little phone sales, uh, but, and working, you know, to put some marketing materials together and, 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 and basically, you know, helping to kind of kick off DIY beyond just the punk scene, essentially. You know, mm -hmm. we kind of pioneered some of these packages. You go today to disc makers or any any company, you know, it's a whole package for CDs, right? It's it's the discs and the printing on the disc and the printing of the covers and the packaging and the poly wrap and the barcode. Mm -hmm. But it didn't exist back in the in the mid eighties. You know, we we kind of figured all of that out as we were going along and and helped kind of pioneer some of that. So as I got into disc makers and got into my day gig, you know, I, I kind of transitioned my passion for DIY and it allowed me to apply that to helping other artists DIY, right? Helping other artists do what they love and, and give them a shot at making a living uh, doing what they love, right. you know, sticking it to the man, right. as it were, mm -hmm. and and so um, uh, you know, so and and we started having, um, you know, we were still playing some gigs with Homo Picnic, but it started to become a grind. Um, just the calling and booking and and you know all the business side, uh, particularly you know after putting in eight or nine or ten hours during the day, you know, doing all that during the evening, realizing, you know what, this, this is, you know, this band is, you know, this is a long, hard slog. If we really want to, you know, get somewhere, um, you know, fairly significant. And so at some point in time, um, after a particularly frustrating gig, um, we decided, you know what, this is it. We're done. And I mean, we're all still friends, um, you know, but uh, the, the band was done. And then, as I said, you know, Doug won, went on to some other bands um, and uh, he, he's still uh, recording and performing uh, today as uh, Dr. Israel is his name. And he okay. does like, you know, reggae, drum and bass techno kind of stuff and he DJs. Rich has been around the world multiple times, uh, you know, with uh, Brutal Truth and some of the other bands. Yep. Um, so it's, it's, it's been great. But, you know, the, the cool thing for me is, you know, I, I, I was able to, you know, translate my love for DIY into something that, you know, I still do today, right? Uh, um, I mean, I'm I'm the CEO of Disc Makers today, uh, and um, you know I, I feel just as motivated today. You know, being able to empower you know thousands of artists, uh, you know, to get their own product out, and and you know we um, CD Baby is is a sister company of Disc Makers, and uh, you know. So, so not just do we make the physical product, but we do the digital distribution and, and help artists get their, get their music out. And it's, it's extremely gratifying, you know, to be able to, to, to play a role in, in 
being and having that conduit, mm -hmm. you know, that big pipe for artists, you know, to to take a genuine, have a genuine shot at, you know, at making it, at doing what they love. So how did you wind up moving from, your, you know, initially entering the company to being the CEO of the company? I mean, this is, a, I imagine, a long journey of, of many years. It's a long journey. Um, constantly guided by, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm probably blessed with pretty good judgment and common sense, but also guided by that, that gut feel for what would work for the artist, what the artist wants, and, and doing the right thing for the artist. And so, um, you know, it was just a, it, it was a gradual progression, right? I was in customer service, I did some sales, then I became customer service manager, um, and marketing manager, and then I became, you know, marketing and sales director, and um, and then I became VP, and it, it just, I mean, this is a, this covers a span of 20 years. Right. You know, I became CEO of the company in, in 2007. I started there in 87. So it's a gradual, you know, I, I commuted up, we had an office in New York when I started there, a little sales office. I commuted up to New York. Uh, every day, I took the train. I took the the trolley from 46 and Chester to 30th Street Station. I took Amtrak from 30th Street to Penn trip. Station. It made for some long days. It was great experience. You know, our office was at uh, 46th Street, right off of Seventh, so right off of Times Square. Interesting. You know, I mean, I got to know New York a little bit. Interesting dealing with these New Yorkers and 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 their uh, you know in your face kind of style, because I was always a very, you know, I was a, always a very timid kid. Um, and, uh, but boy, you have to, you have to shed that quickly when you get in the workforce, because they will walk all over you. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess you were seeing a pre-Disney Times Square, at least initially. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was, I imagine, quite, quite a scene. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it was, uh, it was cool. It was interesting. You know, I was... Um, you know, I, I had a girlfriend, but I wasn't married. I, you know, my, my girlfriend, uh, who's my wife now, uh, was living in DC at the time. So I'm just, I'm just rolling. I'm going back and forth and I'm working, I'm learning. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of how it went. And I just, you know, just as, uh, as we have a saying, you know, at work, take care of here and you'll get there. Right. I didn't have any kind of grand plan, grand scheme of, you know, I want to run this company one day or what have you. I was just into what I was doing and wanted to do the best job that I knew how. And, and you know, Morris, the owner, and I have a, have a great relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we worked, you know, side by side to basically turn this business around to where, you know, we do almost no label business at this point in time. And, and you know, it's all independent. And, and you know, we got into CD-ROM, you know, which is almost nothing anymore now. But, and we got into DVD. And, 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 um, and I realized, you know, there's, there's DIY of all stripes and colors, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just music. You know, a filmmaker uh, looking to you know, put his film on DVD is just as legitimately DIY. Oh, and it yeah, was, yeah. It, I, I found it was just as motivating to me to, you know, to, to help 
you know, that filmmaker, you know, get their product out and, and be able to have a professional product to, you know, go to screenings with or to submit to film festivals, mm -hmm. etc. And there's so few outlets, if, you know, for that individual to be able to see that executed and put forward. It's much tougher, you know, being DIY in the, in the, you know, in the film space or most other spaces, even in the book space, you know, we, you know, with CD Baby, we have a, a, a division called Book Baby that does ebook publishing for authors. And we do, and so, and we distribute to, you know, Apple for the iPad and, and Amazon for the Kindle and Barnes and Noble. So you do the formatting of the yeah. EPUB or Mobi exactly. or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And we distribute and then we, you know, we get paid and then we pay the, uh, the author, but it's hard. You know, the musician has a big advantage being DIY because you have an, if you're gigging, you have an outlet built in because you can always sell product at gigs. Right. Right. And, um, but there's no equivalent to gigging if you're a filmmaker or if you're an author. Yeah, for right, that. yeah right. Yeah. Right? So it, it's, it, it makes being DIY that much more challenging and in a way frustrating. Because when you're a musician, as every gigging musician knows, there is invaluable learning coming from reading the audience while you're performing. Mm -hmm. Right? Are they into you or are they not? Right. Um, and when they're into you, you feed off that energy and you get better. And when you when they're not, you have to do some soul searching and figure out, is this going to get me down or I'm going to up my game? Right, right. Um, yeah, I guess when you're hunched over a computer writing, you're not getting as much feedback and there's not the sort of glamour that would be projected from doing a physical performance. Correct, uh, and of and course, and, and we have as musicians the opportunity, uh, particularly when you're, uh, you know, an opening act or an, an underbill act, um, to be exposed to people who would normally not be exposed to your music. And so you can kind of get that incremental exposure that's much harder uh, when you're an author, you know, just releasing your book quietly, mm -hmm. you know, into the wild. Right, and hoping for the best that you're not going to get savaged yeah. on some, yeah. you know, forum or something. Yeah. Well, it seems like your business is a very deftly, deftly adapted to the changing demands of uh, marketplace, and kind of like taking in these different things and and you know continuing to move forward rather than you know stagnating or, re or remaining at the same level in terms of what you're producing and putting out into the world. Yeah, we had you know this makers was. Founded in 1946 to press 78 RPM shellac wow. discs. That's and we migrated through all the formats. 78s, 45s, LPs, 8-tracks we did, cassettes, and then CDs, etc. And, and so um, I remember, you know, around the turn of the century, when Napster exploded onto the scene, thinking... If we don't do something about this, if we don't figure out how to be relevant in this non-physical world that's mm -hmm. coming, we are going to be a dinosaur. And I don't want to be a dinosaur, right? We had, we had part of our success had been to be format agnostic. Whatever the format was, you know, we never wanted to be last man standing on vinyl or last man standing on CDs. Do you still press vinyl? Uh, we don't. Um... We got out of pressing vinyl a little over a decade ago, 
Um, we have looked at it every year for the past four or five years. Um, we're thinking about it. Because it's, it's always kind of crazy idea, you know? thinking about getting back into it, but but, but you always hear vinyl is back with the kids. Vinyl you know? is tired of vinyl is, and it's growing. Um, the interesting thing with vinyl is, you know, there's a limited set of plants in the country. Uh, all of them are thinking, boy, this is a flash in the pan. I'm not adding capacity, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not investing, but I'm going to ride it for as long as I can. And yeah. so, uh, you know, it's it's gotten expensive to make. It takes forever. To get delivery and so we're thinking you know what maybe there is a longer term opportunity here and 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 if there is um we would we would certainly want yeah, to. it seems like the trend has had some yeah. staying power now that it's been a sort of a perennial yeah. trend yeah um, so back to the yeah, so, yeah, so the know. napster thing so um you know we we started really thinking you know what, what are we going to do and we we ended up um a number of years, we started referring our clients to CD Baby, which in the early days just sold CDs online. There was this was before iTunes and before the iTunes Store certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but in I think two thousand four, the iTunes Store came around. I think it's two thousand four, um, and CD Baby, which was owned by Derek Sivers, uh, converted and digitized all their CD catalog and delivered it all to iTunes. And so now all of a sudden, you know, our clients were able to get onto iTunes through a partnership with CD Baby. But we realized ultimately, you know, we had to do this ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we could either build it or buy it. Um, and uh, ended up uh, ultimately, you know, long story short, making a deal with Derek when he wasn't interested in running it anymore in 2008. Uh, we were able to uh, acquire CD Baby. And, you know, it's been great. It's, you know, it's hand in glove. It's the exact same client, right, that needs CDs, that also needs the digital distribution. And so it's, it's, been, uh, um, it's, it's been very, very productive and positive, uh, you know, having those two companies kind of under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. I, I found in the business that I run that the, the supposed demise of a desire within the public for a physical format is largely exaggerated. I think that there are there is a segment of the population that has always wanted and will always wanted a physical object to own and not a bunch of zeros and ones in their computers. Or maybe both, but still wanting to have the physical object. Do you still find that there is, you know, a demand for a physical object? We are releasing more titles on C D this year than we ever have before. What, how, what do you attribute that to? Well, so here, here's the thing, right? It is obvious that CD revenues in, in, in the music industry continue to decline every year because less people are buying CDs at retail. And, and retail uh, space for CDs has been slashed. Uh, and, and, and understandable. I mean, you know, a download... Even a stream is a pretty compelling value proposition because it's 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 cheap. Certainly, streaming is cheap. Uh, listening to Spotify um, and it's instant, and it's it's you know you have a whole smorgasbord of of, of choice at your fingertips. Um, so the role of the CD over the past decade has evolved from being really a carrier medium for sound mm -hmm. ten years ago. 
to today where the CD has become almost a souvenir. So who makes CDs? Who are these tens of thousands of acts that are making CDs with disc makers? They're artists that are buying them to sell at gigs. You know, it's back to, and it, it was never different, it's back to the old DIY days, right? When we were gigging, traveling the country in a van, where we're thinking, okay, we can, um, you know, we're going to get paid 25 bucks or 50 bucks or heck, 100 bucks for this gig in Boston. Mm -hmm. And we can walk out with 100 bucks or we can walk, around, walk out with 200 bucks or more by having vinyl and uh, yeah, t-shirts available mm -hmm. for sale, right? Yeah. And so it's the same thing. My kids, I have two kids in college. They've never bought a CD. They had never bought a CD in their life until they started going to concerts. And all of a sudden they came home with CDs, but they were autographed by the bands and stuff like that. It was like a souvenir. It's like, wow, I was at this gig. Mm -hmm. And they look at it and they, it reminds them of being at the gig. So the role of the CD has changed, but CDs continue for DIY artists to be a disproportionate revenue driver from selling at their gigs. They don't really sell much in retail, even though, believe it or not, at CD Baby, our CD sales are up 12% this year. Um, mostly from getting better distribution deeper into various uh, online and retail channels. Um, and getting our product in front of a larger market. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there, there's, there still is demand for CDs. But, you know, you're, what are you going to sell? 10 CDs a year, 12 CDs a year, 25 CDs a year. If you're gigging regularly, you, you sell that in one gig. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the, the gig is really the place where, where you need product. And this is, you know, I tell artists, when you're gigging, you need a selection of product. Don't let your product go out of stock. Because you never know. Somebody might like, might like your old one and now they want a new one. You may have a new fan who has your new CD, but they, yeah, they don't have your old one. Yeah. You know, you want to have t-shirts, you want to bundle them, you know, maximize the revenue that you make as an artist, you know, to pay for gas, pick strings and drumsticks, uh, and, 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 and hopefully more, you know, recording and, and, and the van and, you know, ultimately, hopefully make a living. Yeah, and it is your legacy that you're, you're putting there on this thing. I mean, that, this, the, the physical object is going to last longer than the band probably is going to be performing. So for people who buy that thing, they're going to, you know, if they like it that much, take it forward in life with them. Right. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So, you know, um, I mean, people ask me all the time, what about CDs? Do I need CDs? And the answer, you know... The answer is yes, and I, I don't mean to come across like a commercial, uh, you know, for making CDs, because that, that's not what I'm trying to do. But, you know, in terms of advice for DIY artists, if you don't have a range of products available, whether it's CDs or T-shirts or vinyl, um, you know, you're, you're not optimizing your opportunity, you know, to get payback from your music and ultimately if you want to if you love music so much that you want to do it for a living a commercial transaction has to happen at some point in time right. somebody's got to buy what yes. you got to sell whether it's a ticket or a t-shirt or a disc yeah
And people want to have a physical product, or some people do, because it's the it's the representation of themselves. They define themselves by what they own, and therefore need to own something, need to have something yeah. to kind of fill physical space and kind of define the, the person that they are. Yeah. So and you know, look and and you know I I consider myself very fortunate that um, you know this whole journey started with being blown into a wall by why die <laughs> you know right. in the fall of 1983 mm-hmm. and and being able to really you know live a, you know a, a whole career you know dedicated to helping artists DIY has been very gratifying and you know being able to you know have a house and two dogs and two kids in college and you know a wife um, with with all of that and have all of that having made all that possible has been just I consider myself very fortunate. Yeah, I think the, the people who probably encounter you in your professional capacity as the CEO of this company probably wouldn't imagine that the genesis of what you've done has been why die pummeling you at a hardcore show in the 80s. <laughs> they don't know that level of detail. No, I, I mean, by now, you know, I, back in the old days, I, I you know, I, I was, uh, you know, it was a little weird telling folks what the name of my band was. And by now, I'm like, I'm over it. I'll tell folks, you know, new hires, whatever, if they ask. If they don't ask, I don't volunteer it. But if they ask, yeah. I'll tell them. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it's all good. And they can all... They can all go and stream it and download it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's instantly and if they pay available for it, everywhere. Even better for you. It's instantly available everywhere. Yeah. Not that Spotify pays you very much if they're listening to it, but uh, we'll take it. You know, enough. enough thousands of pennies. Before you know it, you have a dime. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Someday, two dimes, yes. 20 cents. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you, Tony, for talking to me. Uh, I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you uh, you interviewing me and uh, kind of leading me down this uh, this this walk down memory lane. I'm glad you will join the pantheon of the greats now in the uh, interview <laughs> series. Yes, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm I'm just a a mere a mere peon uh, among among the greats. <laughs> merely merely a performer, you know, coming in really kind of with an outside perspective. Uh, you know, it's really. Uh, you know, the, the some of the pioneers that you've interviewed, uh, just it's fabulous people doing great stuff, uh, and and you're doing great stuff. No, not trying to not trying to butter you up, but this is this has been a great uh, for for I think for everybody who's been in the scene, um, just great stuff to 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 listen to. Thanks. Well, I'm really glad that your voice could be part of the, the chorus of those voices because I think that everybody's perspective has been very unique as individuals and that, you know, when listened to as a whole, I think kind of creates a really interesting portrait of Philadelphia uh, and its underground music scene and, and what people have done with it. Uh, and I always hope that younger people listen to these things and, um, you know, maybe something of what you talk about or what anybody else talks about appeals to them and they kind of see how how you went about doing the thing or somebody else did it and then you know maybe take that path or or some version of that path going forward so we can only hope yeah right thank you thank you